Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look this morning at verses 4 through 7. 4 through 7. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third to the on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, doers of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. You know, when we, when we talk about cooking, me and my wife are fans of cooking. We like to cook. We like to try new things. And my wife has now developed um, this banging recipe for barbecue shrimp. It's, the, it's a fantastic recipe, and the shrimp are phenomenal, all right? And so, and so she, she really has outdone herself. But the one thing that you, you may have noticed if you've actually tasted barbecue shrimp or if you've had barbecue shrimp, the one thing that you may have noticed is that barbecue shrimp actually isn't really barbecue like you would think it is. It's not barbecued at all. I mean, it, there's, there's a process involved, but it's more so a process involving blackening shrimp and seasoning shrimp and cooking it over a skillet. And it's not shrimp that's on the grill. And so, and so we have a name, but if you're not careful and you mix the wrong practice with the name, then you completely, completely undermine the name itself. Barbecue shrimp has an associated practice with it that makes it barbecue shrimp. And it has nothing to do with your grill. The same can be said for God. The, we talked about last week that verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, is about us laying claim or us, us laying claim in our hearts that there is only one true, holy, and righteous God. But this week, what we want to talk about is that that God requires a right way in which we worship him. You can't just take the name of God and then choose, choose to do whatever you want to do with that name. The first commandment, in other words, focuses on worshiping the right God. But the second and the third commandment focuses on worshiping that God in the right way. So when you look at this text, we have to ask the question, what is the actual error that, that, that God is seeking to guard his people against? In the second commandment that we're looking at this morning, the error is seeking to represent the divine with images made with human hands. It's seeking to use the common to try and construct the holy. Let me offer you two ways in which this plays out typically in life. There's a formal way and then there's an informal way. If you look at verse 4 in chapter chapter 20, it says, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. The Lord includes 
all the sources here for which we might be tempted to look to. Heavens, land, water, oceans, seas, lakes, rivers, anything underneath them, anything within them. He says, don't use any of them as representations of me. Do not try to use anything in creation as a stand-in for the uncreated one. This makes complete and total sense when you consider again, as we have been considering throughout this series, where Israel came from. They came from Egypt. Egypt had many gods, and they tried to forge those gods in the images of the ocean, the heavens, and the earth. For example, they had one god depicted as a falcon. They had another god depicted as a hawk. They had another God depicted as a cow. They had another God depicted as a frog. They had another God depicted as a jackal. They had another God depicted as a cat. And on and on and on, snakes and so forth and so on. The attempt to depict gods in this way was somewhat understandable. And, 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 and the reason why it was understandable, because each of these depictions were intended to highlight certain attributes and strengths. For example, the cow was intended to represent the god's strength of fertility. And the falcon, the imagery there was intended to represent the God's strength in war and in hunting. And the cat was intended to represent the, God, the God's strength in the home as a guardian and as a keeper. Which I'm not very sure who created these gods because if you've ever been around a cat, not sure they, were, they care about protecting anything except for themselves. However, that's not the point. The point is that each of these images may have intended to communicate one or two truths about the divine, but their weaknesses also ended up representing the divine. And while it may have been okay to represent the false gods of Egypt like that, the one and true, the true God of Israel could never be represented in this way. There is nothing that can be used to depict our God, because no image is sufficient to capture his holiness. No earthly image is sufficient to capture his otherness or his vastness or his supremacy or his omnipresence or his omnipotence or his omniscience. Any image that we create in an effort to represent God will only serve in bringing God down to our level. No matter how great the image is, there is no omnipotent image. There is no omnipresent image. There is no image that captures otherness. And so all images that we use only bring him down, reduce him. No matter how great the image is, if we try to boil him down to being represented by created things, we have diminished him to his own creation. He stands above his creation. 
He stands above our imagination. That is where he must ultimately remain in our understanding and in our worship of him. Pastor theologian Phil Riken says the following about this commandment. He says, now some have read this command and assumed that it is a call away from the building and carving of, of any structure. And that's not true. It's not, it's not a command to call you away from any structure. Statues and monuments, for, 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 for instance, are not necessarily on the chopping block when you read this text. I don't think it is at the heart. I don't think that is what the heart of this commandment is about. For example, when you look at a few chapters in, or a few chapters down to Exodus 31, you hear this. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. I said Bez, Bezalel. I'm sorry for that, guys. I don't know how to pronounce that one. Bezalel, I believe. The Lord filled this man, Bezalel, with the spirit in order that he might have the ability and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship to design artistically to use materials such as gold and silver and bronze and stones and wood to make awesome art. So God is not outlawing art in this commandment. You see, art is used to cause us to reflect and art is used to cause us to inspire and art can be used to provoke us and motivate us and even convict us at times. Art can be used to give us a deeper sense of God. For example, when you hear beautiful singing, it, it may lead you to a moment of deeper worship. Art is a valuable tool. Even as we look toward tomorrow, to celebrate the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we know that there are many pieces of art that depict him that have been completed. And many of them were intended to do many of the things that I just described a moment ago. The movies and the pictures and the poetic words from his speeches and sermons and even the, the, the massive landmark in D.C. is intended to remind you of the great struggle of freedom during the civil rights movement. And it's intended to inspire you to live with courage in the face of adversity and it's, it's intended to provoke you even possibly to worship as you think about the deep spiritual roots of the movement and how almost to a man and to a woman, if you would have asked them how did they keep going in the face of such impossible odds, they would have responded through Jesus. The civil rights movement is given a power that extends beyond the years in which it lasted, thanks in part to the gift of art. Artistic expression is intended to do that. And thus it's not wrong on its face. Art and images 
aren't wrong on their face. The line that separates goodness in art, goodness in simple and beautiful artwork, to rank idolatry is, is, is when an object is created for worship. When an object becomes a tool of worship. When an object is created as representation of the divine and is created as an object of worship. That's when we have stepped over the line into idolatry. You see, again, the era is not in forging and creating artwork using metal and wood and mater other materials. The era is in worshiping those things. Verse five, verse 5 highlights the era. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. It is pointing to the art or a token as some source of ultimate meaning. That's when you get it wrong. When the art or the token becomes some source of ultimate hope or some source of ultimate purpose or some source of ultimate significance. Let me give you one, one informal example in how art and symbols can veer into, into idolatry. Say, for instance, you... Take a token or a memento for a loved one who, who has passed. You have this token and you keep this token and this token serves in reminding you of the good memories that you enjoyed with this loved one. There's nothing wrong with that art and what it does for you. But say you move from that to a place where you have to have the token. And when you don't have it, before a big moment or a big day that requires you to be at your best, you begin to panic. And you might respond to someone who would ask, why are you tripping about this thing? You would respond, well, I just feel like they are near me when I have it, and they, and they are there to give me strength, and they are there to guide me, and, and without it, I'm just not able to perform at my best. Now, we are teetering on the edge to idolatry. Because in this symbol, you find ultimate significance. You find ultimate hope. You find ultimate purpose. You find ultimate meaning. See, when we begin to place our confidence in the objects and their power, instead of placing our confidence in the God who created those objects, we are teetering on the edge of idolatry. One more example. The church oftentimes can get to a place where we feel like if we aren't showing people enough things, then we can no longer grab their attention towards Jesus. We get to a place where, where, where we feel like we have to give them more pomp and circumstance and movies and extravaganza and, 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 and all sorts of things visually because the, because the written word simply is no longer sufficient. And we get to a place sometimes even where the undermining of the written word is done in, the, in favor of these visual artifacts. In other words, the pictures that we see begin to tell us more about Jesus than the word that we read. And the movies that we watch 
Tell us more about Jesus than the word that we read and the plays that are performed. Tell us more about Jesus than the word that we read. And so when we get to this place where all these visual artifacts rise to the level of inerrancy and rise to the level of inspiration and rise to the level of, of infallibility, now we have made the visual artifacts images, idolatrous images. In place of God. One more important point that I want to raise about this command. Notice the reason that God gives for the command in the text. Exodus 25 and 6, it says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third, on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Why does God say that I will not permit you to bow down and serve graven images of cats and jackals and cows, or in the case of Israel, of course, the golden calf? Because he is a jealous God. You know, Oprah Winfrey years ago got this wrong about God. She told a story about um, being in a church service one Sunday morning and listening to a sermon when the preacher proclaimed that God was a jealous God. And I'll let Oprah tell the story from here. And she says, uh, in quote, I happened to be sitting in church in my late 20s. I was going to this church where there was a great minister, and this great minister was preaching about how great God was and how omniscient and and, and omnipresent, and God is everything. And then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous. Something struck me. I was thinking God is all. God is omnipresent. God is all. God's also jealous? God is jealous of me? Something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. And so that's when the search for something more than doctrine started to stir within me, end quote. The first thing she gets, about, gets wrong about God is that God is not jealous in the sense that we typically associate jealousy. When we think about jealousy, we think about the things that we possess and people see those things that we possess And they become jealous because we possess them instead of them possessing them. God owns everything. So there's nothing that he sees in you and says, man, I wish I had that. Doesn't exist. And so that's that's the wrong sense to understand, understand God's jealousy towards us. What's interesting about what she says is that what she says is part right and she misses it. God is love. And that's the sense in which the jealousy is operating, a jealous love towards us. In other words, when you think about God being jealous, you should think about the husband who is jealous of his wife or the wife who is jealous of her husband, should she see her husband or or the wife or, yeah, or should the husband see the wife with somebody else besides them? 
if they engage in another relationship, you wouldn't expect the wife to say, whatever. You wouldn't expect the husband to say, do what you do, it don't matter to me. If they did, you would say, there's something wrong with that one. <laughs> I, I don't know enough about their marriage. I mean, I, I'm, not in, I'm not in the weeds, but I know enough to know something that ain't right about that marriage. That's all, I mean, that's all you would need to see, right? Because you would expect jealousy to be a part of that marriage because love is a part of that marriage. And since love, a, 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 a love that is monogamous is in that marriage, then they won't, they won't permit the other to be with, one, uh, with someone else. God is jealous in that sense. He's jealous in the sense where he will not permit you to worship a frog or a snake or, God forbid, a cat. He won't permit you to worship any of that because your worship belongs to him. You are in exclusive relationship with him. And so he won't permit you to worship money. He won't permit for you to worship your job. He won't permit for you to worship sex. He won't permit for you to worship substance. He won't permit for you to worship food because your worship belongs to him. He is a jealous God, so no image comes before him. And he will move you and disrupt your agenda in order to, in order to single out your worship. To him because he's jealous because he loves you deeply here's another reason why you don't need graven images of course because God is jealous but also you don't need graven images because we have the image of God we have the perfect image of God we have the only true and complete image of God and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. John chapter 14 of verse 6 through 9, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. One of his disciples, Philip, said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds to him and says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We don't need other images because we've been given Christ. And when you learn of Christ and when you read about Christ and when your, the eyes of your heart are open to see Christ, you have seen God. You have seen the perfect image of God. There's no other images left to be seen or gazed upon. If you need something to look at, if you need something to gaze upon, then my encouragement to you this morning is to look at Jesus. Gaze upon him. 
Because in doing so, you will see God. Now, quickly, the second and final commandment that I want to cover this, mor- this, this, this morning, the third commandment, is again dealing with seeking to worship the right God, but seeking to worship him in the right way. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's what it says in Exodus 20, verse 7. This commandment carries a multitude of layers in it. It is more than just simply calling on the name of the Lord. You see, the first layer is the profane layer. You can, you can, you can, you can break this commandment by calling on the name of the Lord in a profane way. The second layer is the perjurious layer. You can break this commandment by committing perjury using the name of the Lord. The third layer and the most important layer for me, and we'll discuss it shortly, is the pointless layer. You can commit, you can break this commandment by treating the name of the Lord with levity or too lightly. First, the profane. This is a commandment to not use or call upon the name of the Lord in a crude way, to not curse God's name, nor use God's name to curse someone else frivolously and carelessly. Most of us are familiar with this layer. Just simple terms that when we say God, those are profane ways to use God's name in vain. But the second layer is the perjurious layer or the perjury layer. It's to call on the name of the Lord in order to support a foundation of lies. This comes in the infamous words that we sometimes hear when we're on the street and somebody is saying, man, listen, I went to the court yesterday and scored 50 I was killing them boys, man. I was shooting three-pointers from everywhere. I went up and I dunked them. And we're like, dude, you're five feet. There's no way you dunk. And they said, I swear before God. That's the perjurious layer. It's calling upon the name of the Lord to support a foundation and frame of lies. One theologian shares on how people would exploit the perjurious layer back in the day, the ancient days, in in this following quote. He says, to persuade others that they were telling the truth in court, for example, or in connection with a business deal, people will often say something like, as surely as the Lord lives. By lifting up God's name, they were trying to prove that what they were saying was true. In effect, they were calling God as their witness. The problem came when people took an oath in God's name and then proceeded to lie. This was perjury, a direct violation of the third commandment. It was using God's name to confirm what was false rather than what was true. So God said, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God. And that's found in Leviticus chapter 19. And that ends the quote. It's to say, oh man, I put that on God. To bolster a claim, even though that claim is facetious or that claim is false, rather. 
See, in Matthew 5, Jesus says that you don't swear by heaven. You don't swear by earth. You don't swear by Jerusalem. You let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't even swear by your own head. And you say, well, why was Jesus concerned about all those things? Well, what, hap- what was happening was in order to not swear by God, they would lower the standard but still make it serious enough where some credibility could be gained. So maybe it's not God, but it's God's heaven. Maybe it's not God, but it's God's earth. Maybe it's not God, but it's God's Jerusalem. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, listen, heaven is the throne of God. He owns that. Earth is his footstool. He owns that. Jerusalem is his city. He owns that. Matter of fact, you can't even swear by your own head because he owns you. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. You don't own anything to swear by. All of it's his. So when you swear by any of it and you're swearing only to create credibility for your lie, you are still profaning the name of the Lord your God. So the first layer is the profane, using the Lord's name as a curse word. The second layer is the perjurious, using the Lord's name as a cover for lies. And the last, like I said, the most important layer for me is the pointless. Using the Lord's name simply flippantly. Using the Lord's name casually. You see, the third commandment here is a call to not use the Lord's name without reverence. And here's something that we need to understand about the concept of name in this time, in the ancient days. You see, name, names were deeper than just mere words. They spoke to the whole person. They spoke to the very essence of a person. When you heard the word name, you should, you, should think, you should think that we are talking about the whole of a person. And so when we, hear, when we hear this ideal of the whole of the person, then we should think about the Lord's name in vain basically means to treat God lightly. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 7, we hear these words. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did you hear that? Lord, 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 Lord. And each time he's saying that you are profaning my name, you are using my name in vain. You are using it flippantly. What do you mean by that? It means that you were using it, but you were not serving me when you spoke it. You were serving yourselves. You were using it, but you were serving your interests. You were using it, but you were serving your bellies and your appetites and your ambitions. And so, therefore, you were taking my name in vain. 
To use the Lord's name in vain means to use the Lord's name without regard for him. It means to call upon him with no regard to honor him. It means to call upon him with no regard to serve him. It means to bring him down and treat him as if he is common enough for us to be flipping about him. When we pray, remember, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, remember what he says. The disciples say, Lord, teach us. What does he say? First thing, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. The first first thing that Jesus teaches us is to make the name of God holy, to treat the name of God, rather, as holy, because it is. To not be flippant with God, the whole of God, the essence of God. Because remember, the name is not just words, but it is the essence. And he says, treat your God as holy. Do not treat your God as common. Treat him as holy. How are you treating God? Is my question this morning. Is he an accessory to you? Is it, is it, is it, is it used as the butt of uh, the, 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 the punchline and jokes? Is he used as a term to build credibility when you don't have any credibility? Is he used as the as he used is he used as the as, as the as the punch in, in one of your curse words? How are you, you how are you treating the name of the Lord your God? And also how are you treating God? How do we ultimately honor God's name? I'll tell you how. We ultimately honor God's name by taking on Christ. Why do we know that? Because the Bible says that in Christ or that Christ has been given a name that is above every name. And so in worshiping the one who has been given a name above every name, we are cherishing and valuing the name of God. The ultimate way to honor God's name is through his son. When he say, Lord, Lord, you hear, you hear Matthew 7 over and over again, Lord, 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 what's being said in that moment is that they are not honoring my name. And how are they not honoring my name? By rejecting the Savior, by rejecting the sacrifice, and by trying, in a sense, to save themselves with their acts and their works and their ambitions not with their love and with their honor and their faith in the one true God. Folks, it matters not just simply to have the right God by name. It matters not just simply to have the right God by name, but to have the right practice associated with that God. So we just can't call upon Yahweh but we have to call upon Yahweh in the manner in which he has declared we must call upon him. And in so doing, that means that when we call upon him, we, might, we must call upon him exclusively as the one true God. And that means that when we call upon him, we must call upon him not flippantly, not carelessly, but hollowed and honored and savored and adored. 
This is what it means to worship. This is what it means to worship God. And may we do it in accordance to his word. And when we fail, may we run to the cross. And may we find grace and may we find mercy yet again in our failings. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you.